This is Your Bird Story, a broadcast of bird stories told by everyday people about their interactions and relationships with wild birds in cities. I'm your host, Georgia Silvera Simeons. Welcome, Wambui, to your bird story. Thank you. Thanks. We've gotten to know each other via social media, Zoom, and by phone. And we met because of our shared love of plants. And I'd love for you to introduce yourself to our listeners. Hi, Georgia, and thank you so much for having me here. My name is Wambui Ippolito. I am East African born and um, raised in the early part of my childhood in Nairobi, Kenya and spent a lot of time throughout um, the country. Um, specifically, most of my holidays were spent in the Rift Valley, um, in, uh, in and around a small town called Eldoret, where my great-grandparents and grandparents settled, and where my mother went to high school, and um, where we spent you know, a lot of time as children, so. I live in New York City now. I am a landscape designer and horticulturalist. And I've lived in other parts of the world as well, you know, because of the work that my mother did and also my adventures. I went to college in Costa Rica. I worked Mm -hmm. in Costa Rica, you know. So basically, I'm a child of the world. Oh, I can't wait to um, dig into that. Before we get there, though, you share a lot on Instagram about the connections between you and your family and the Mm -hmm. land. Your writing and photographs are just absolutely beautiful. And I always feel them in my heart when I read them. Thank you. You're welcome. For listeners who don't follow you on Instagram, can you give us a glimpse into your familial connection to the land? Like, so specifically, what meaning does nature hold for you and your family? I think I would say it means everything because, first of all, the tribe that I come from is a very matriarchal tribe on my mother's side, my maternal um, family. And they are really people who come out of the land. Everything that we do revolves around tillage, land ownership, uh, the fight for our land during colonialism and the ability to bequeath land to your children and their children before you leave. So land is central to our identity and the food that grows in it and the structures that we live in, which are built out of that land, you know, are built from the soil, are built from sticks, you know. So I've always known that my identity, in as much as I may have lived in other areas um, on this planet, that my identity was very much formed by that soil as well, you know. And also just being East African and living in the Rift Valley, living in the place from which humanity sprung, Hmm. there's another layer 
to that, you know, in my awareness of, of who I am on this planet, that I am standing on this land, on this ground, where my earliest mothers and fathers stood. Like we literally came out of this ground that I am born on. So there's that long, long, long history that is very much alive in me as I'm a child moving around, you know, as, as later on um, in my 20s when, uh, when, I, when I went back to Kenya after my family had moved away. So land is everything, so to speak, you know, and it is a type of place that is very unlike the one that I live in now in New York City, you know, a place where nature isn't organized, you know, mm. landscapes aren't organized landscapes aren't policed you know you don't have those keep off the grass stay on the trail you know keep off the garden bed you know nor do you have the constant presence of of um people who police you you know mm. on this land who tell you you know break it up move it move, move along you know break it up you know so it's it's a very different um relationship that I have to that land than I do this piece of ground that I live on here. I feel very transient here. I feel um, like I have no real stake here. And above all, living in the United States of America, there's a very deep sadness as I continue to evolve and become more awakened to what has really happened in this country mm -hmm. you know because of my family history and that history of land and the history of fighting for our land and winning in a sense you know and and not being colonized today there's a huge part of me that identifies with native americans here you know and their history and their continuing struggle to keep this identity and this what I call this feeling of being part of the land alive and mm -hmm. of reminding people that this is not their 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 land this is not their territory this is Native American ground you know when I think about how Native American history you know post first contact has has unraveled it it parallels so much what happened to my family you know the reserves you know we call them reserves at home here they call them reservations you know mm. the schools the loss of language you know the, the the cutting down of the old trees you know um when the british came to kenya and realized especially where my people are and realized that for us, God lived in those trees, you know, like the Mavuma tree, this, these trees where we know God lives, you know, trees that, that we weren't even able to, well, not me, but, you know, my, my, in my mother's and my grandmother's times, where women couldn't pick firewood because that would belong to God. Mm -hmm. You know, the British came in and started chopping down all of those trees, huge trees that had been there for, for who knows how many thousands of years because they wanted to break our connection to that, that essence, that, that spiritual world. And they did the same here in the U.S., you know. When and I look throughout at the, the world, right? And throughout the world, yeah. You know, well, 
And that's because colonialism was a template that they just moved th throughout the world. So, so yeah, I, I feel, um, I feel like I have no stake on this ground. Not that I'm trying to get it because I do have a home. I have a home in East Africa that I can go back to and plan on going back to. But, um, but yeah, so that's my story in a nutshell. <laughs> I know I went all over the place, but. You know, sort of earlier in what you just um, shared with us, um, you know, the sort of the Rift Valley being like the origin of humankind mm -hmm. and how for you that just must be such powerful grounding to be part of mm -hmm. that lineage mm -hmm. and legacy. And I just wanted to kind of really spotlight that because that is something that really jumped out at me to be able mm -hmm. to have such a deep and authentic original connection to the mm -hmm. start of humankind is something I think mm -hmm. that is so wonderful and it's something that's only in certain circles really sort of talked about and highlighted and I'm really glad that you spoke to that here today because um we all need to be thinking about this and mm -hmm. it needs to be part of so many conversations that it's not a part of. Mm -hmm. um, and I know that's some of the, I mean, I don't know if it's intentional, but that's some of the work that I see when you write and share on mm -hmm. Instagram. Well, you know, Georgia, I've thought about what growing up on that landscape meant to me. And I realized that I've always felt very old, you know, I've always felt like I'm a very old person. Even when I was a child, I had that sense of longevity of having been here for a very long time. And that might be because of the people who raised me because they always talked about the land, you mm. know. I remember talking to my grandmother who's now 95 and her name is Wamboy, I'm named after her. And she would tell me about her grandmother and where she lived. And she would always say, you know, when you go to Kiambu and you know that hill and you know where those trees are, that's where my grandmother lived. Now this is my great, great grandmother who was also called Wamboy who, you know, in our naming system, I'm also named after her. So I have a connection to this woman mm -hmm. who probably died in the late, you know, um, you know, she, she probably died around maybe 1929, you know, this great, great grandmother. I feel like I know her because I know where she lived. I've seen the place, I can go there. I know where those trees are, you know? So growing up on that landscape, I knew that I am very old. I always felt very connected to everything that had happened there, to all the animals, all the, the, the birds, you know, because all our bones were in that ground, you know? Mm -hmm. And I remember saying something, I think it was on Instagram. I was talking about, I think I was talking about um, these wildlife documentaries. And I mentioned how in as much as I'm East African and I grew up on that landscape and my ancestors bones and the bones of all the animals that have lived there are in that ground. I have never seen a wildlife documentary helmed by somebody 
from my homeland. It is mm-hmm. always a European, you know, talking about, you know, these these plants and this wildlife and this landscape. It's always a European. And it may be a European who comes from Europe or one who is living in Africa. But I've never heard a story told by people like me who mm-hmm. come from that landscape, whose ancestors are there and have been there since, you know, Lucy, our our, our mutual, you know, um, ancestor was was walking on that landscape. So when talking about America, I know that there's a history like that here. And that history is a Native American history. So focusing in on birds, and mm-hmm. this is like a great segue in some of what you just said about who gets to tell the stories of mm-hmm. landscapes. Mm-hmm. Um I'm wondering if you can talk about some of the bird species that played a significant role in your life when you lived in Kenya, Um, birds that played a significant role, not just for you personally, but members of your family. The first bird that I heard as a child, every single morning at dawn was an owl it was a morning owl and for the life of me I don't know what the name of that owl is the scientific name but I know the sound and every Kenyan and probably every East African who listens to this podcast will know exactly what I'm talking about and this is the sound that that morning owl made you ready I'm ready And I know every Kenyan knows that sound because that is the sound we heard at dawn every single day of our lives in Kenya. Now, what's so funny is growing up in Nairobi, I don't think a lot of people know this, but Nairobi has, I believe it's like the most diversified um, collection of of bird species. Um, So you have all these sounds all the time you know, as you move along, there are all these sounds. And was the sound we all knew and all heard. So I've been digging everywhere, trying to figure out what that owl's name is so that I can download that sound and have it here <laughs> with me. <laughs> and then there was the one that I, I, I sent you, which was the black cuckoo. Yeah. And then, of course, I mean, we had all kinds of chickens. So you always heard chickens all over the place um, and just a cacophony of sound, of bird sound, especially in Nairobi. And then in the Rift Valley, whatever was specific to that area, you know, um, it was just magical. It was like a symphony of bird sound Mm -hmm. growing up. Yeah. So you've spoken here that you have lived in many different places Mm -hmm. around the world. Um, Do you recall noticing bird sounds in those other environments? For example, you're in Costa Rica for college. Yes. Now, when I was in Costa Rica, uh, mind you, that was the only place when I really heard bird sounds was when I was living in Costa Rica. I have a very dear friend who lived by the zoo in um in san jose and i would go see him and we would walk in there you know through the back gate at the zoo and go through 
and listen to all these birds in 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 the in the in the zoo. And if anybody has ever been to Costa Rica, they know that it is a the zoo is a very old colonial style zoo. Um, I mean, it looks it it comes right out of uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. You would imagine that zoo being in one of his his stories. Mm. But I also remember that as I would walk through that zoo, I was very, very sad, you know, because I saw these birds in cages. Mm. So, so I remember listening to all these sounds in, in San Jose and then also in Cahuita on the, on the eastern side of the country. Parque Bolivar is the zoo in San Jose. So my friend and I, Ignacio Pozuelo would go to the zoo and I would see all these birds and they would be singing in their cages. But I remember being very sad, you know, seeing those animals in those cages. And the other place where we saw animals was in Cahuita on mm. the, I mean, when the, the other place where I heard birds on the Eastern part of the country. And we had rented a house, my friend and I had rented a house a little house right by the beach, a little wooden house right by the beach. And believe it or not, we paid $20. Oh. <laughs> These were friends. I mean, they belonged to our friend's uncle who, you know, had married and moved away. And we were right by the by Playa Negra in, mm. in Cahuita. And it's such a beautiful place. So there were all these incredible birds. But I was in my 20s. I wasn't thinking about birds. I was just mm. putting on my bikini and going into the ocean <laughs> but that is the one place I really really remembered hearing those sounds very different from the sounds that I knew as a child in Africa but that cacophony of sound again and what shocked me was how I didn't hear those sounds when my family had moved here uh, to Washington DC when my mm. mother moved here um, as a diplomat so I didn't hear those sounds in America mm. so that really, I remember that. I remember that absence of that cacophonous um, symphony. Um, when you noticed the absence, um, what did you attribute that to? Or do you remember going deeper into why you weren't hearing those bird sounds or bird sounds? Well, I have thought about it, you know, as I have grown and evolved. And clearly, I mean, it was living in an urban environment, you know, but a, an urban environment that was also very different from that laconical urban environment that I grew up in, in East Africa. Mm. You know? um, the abundance of streetlights, the abundance of of automobiles here, you know, the lack of of tree canopy, you know, in 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 you know Washington D.C. and other cities in which I have lived, in the United States of America, um, pollution, mm. you know, um, you know, and also the mass, you know, killing off of so many species. I sometimes think about, you know, all those plagues that wiped off Native Americans. What plagues wiped off what animals? What birds were here that, that we don't even know were here mm. because they died off, you know, so long ago? You know, what animals, 
you know, like now we know that that animals are getting, you know, COVID-19. Hmm. What what did those plagues do to those animals that were here? What did those plagues do to those birds that were here? Now, on the flip side, Africa has always had contact with Europe, with China. You know, I mean, we had Chinese explorers coming to, to Kenya way, but Zheng He was coming to Kenya in the 1400s. You know, so we've always had contact with in the Arabian world, the Arabian Peninsula, the Arabian world, you know, um, Southeast Asia. I mean, Madagascar had, you know, has had has had a Southeast Asian um, contact with Southeast Asians since God knows when, you mm. know. So Africa, and then Africa ha- presented its own problems to colonizers, disease, you know, malaria, mm. you know, you know, the heat, you know. That's right. You know, so so because trust me, had it been had we been another turtle island, they would have completely taken over. So so in that that those are things that I think about, you know, what was here, what wildlife was here that isn't here anymore that we don't even know about. You know, it's so interesting. I was reading something the other day and I read about this dog. It was a dog and a dog that in which raised um i believe in canada in alaska and they used that dog hair to make blankets but that dog went extinct because of colonialism so there's photographs of this dog that doesn't exist anymore and this dog had been bred by inuits you know for thousands of years but colonialism wiped it out completely and yet photographs remain of the dog and there are blankets that remain in Inuit families that are made from that dog hair. So when I read that story, I thought about, well, what about the birds that were here that we will never know? Mm. So much disappeared because of that act of, of colonialism. As always, Wombly, like brilliant connections. One of the things that comes out of this like set of observations that you've just made is... Um, the role of humans in um jacking everything up <laughs> yeah in much of what's gone wrong not only um in the human realm but right in mm-hmm. the realm mm-hmm. that's non-human mm-hmm. um and as someone who's working in landscapes as a landscape designer as a plants woman um mm-hmm. how are you using your work or are you using your work to remediate landscapes? Do you um, use birds as a lens when you think about your landscape design work? Of course. So I'm lucky enough to have evolved to a point in my life where I realized that making money is important, but I have a responsibility to the planet. So I do as much as I can with the clients that I have to share my ideas with them, you know? So for instance, if you want, you know, a brand new garden installation, I say, well, let's see what's here already. Let's see what Mm. we can work with that's here already, you know, because I'm not here to gouge you. I'm here really by responsibility is to this ground, you know? You know, and how can we introduce, I mean, I know as hokey as it sounds, how can we introduce, you know, uh, blueberries and, and, you know, 
you know, all these native, you know, fruits um, into the design, you know, so that we think about the beauty of your garden, but we also think about all the visitors, you know, mm. who are coming, you know, the, the birds and the bees and, you know, I last, this past summer, I was doing an install for one of my regular clients. They're just the most wonderful people. And they have a home out in Long Island and they have a huge exterior um, green wall that we maintain, you know, every year. But there was a nest um, in the in the wall early last summer. I mean, early this summer. And the, and the eggs hadn't hatched. Mm. So I told them, I said, oh, you know, we can't do anything because the, the eggs there. And it was so wonderful to hear that my clients were having sleepless nights because they were so worried that those eggs would fall, you know, and that they would run out first thing in the morning to make sure that the eggs were still there, you know. And then that, you know, joy when the birds, the eggs finally hatched and the little birds, you know, they were there, you know. So sharing this knowledge that it's not just about us, that there's all these other people living on the, in this space with us. When I designed my garden for the uh, Philadelphia Flower Show this year, which I won, <laughs> best in show, <laughs> I designed a garden for humans and their pets and, and all the other animals that live around. Mm. So I created it so that humans would have this sense of discovery, their pets would have this sense of discovery and whatever molds and bowls and, and mice, you know, live in that area would have places to hide, mm. you know, would have food to eat. So, and birds would come and they did. And it was so wonderful to see birds coming into the bird bath. You know, people would be standing there, you know, early in the morning, there would be this bird. There was a, there was a Baltimore Oriole that came every day. You know? Oh my gosh, that is so exciting. <laughs> I know there was a Baltimore Oriole that came every day. And I remember Leslie, my assistant, you know, once, once, one day I, I hadn't come in, she was there before me. And she said, Hey, guess what? Your friend came by. He always comes by when you're here. And it was a Baltimore Oriole, you know? So I designed that garden for that mm -hmm. so that my friend the, the Baltimore Oriole could come by too yeah. so 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 I use those um I, I don't even call them ideas I use that wisdom when working with my clients yeah I mean I think even that example or the two examples that you gave about the ways in which um human design spaces can support um, non-human life is really important, right? The, the placement of plants um, can support birds and it doesn't have mm -hmm. to be, you know, tens or hundreds of acres, even small footprints can support wildlife. Yeah. And, and a small dense planting, well-intentioned, can do so much. I see it all the time back home, you know, people with one acre of land doing the most incredible things. Now, very interesting story. Where I live in Nairobi, um, in my mother's house, in, in my, my father passed away many years ago, but our home in Nairobi is in a part of Nairobi that was part of the old growth forest 
that stretched all the way to Congo, really. And there are some very old trees in my mother's garden. And my mother has a family of monkeys that lives there, hmm. you know, native monkeys that live there. And I was reading an article, you know, about what the British did when they came, because, you know, colonialism is not just people. Colonialism is the plants they bring and the animals they bring. So when the British arrived in Kenya, you know, they set about creating these cities, you know, with organized ornamental horticulture. They brought in jacaranda trees. They brought in all these palms, you know, from, from South America, you know, the bougainvillea, all these plants that came from somewhere else. And in so doing, began to displace what was, well, of course, they cut down what was there. Mm-hmm. And so the monkeys, many of the monkeys left because they couldn't find the food they eat. You know, many of the birds left because they couldn't find the food they eat. Now, what was good about this part of Nairobi where I grew up is that there were so many trees, old trees extant that were from that old growth forest that these monkeys could then, you know, move to these areas and have Mm. their food. You know, you know what I mean? So again, colonialism and what did it do? You know, because then I start to think, well, were there birds here that, that, that aren't here anymore, even in this part of the world where I live? Mm -hmm. Thinking about, and this is all sort of, like this conversation feels very much like a quilt to me um, Mm -hmm. because there's so many stories that can come together. Because Um, it's a web. It's that web of life that we talk about, you know? And you pull one piece and, oh my goodness, so much can happen. You um, brought up, and I'm very glad you did, that you won Best of Show in Philadelphia this year. I think... Mm -hmm. um, the first black woman to do so. I think the first black woman to show, to show and to win. To show and to win. Um, Well, congratulations again. Thank you. you. As a black woman in landscape design, um, Mm -hmm. can you talk about what it means to be a black woman in this field, specifically in America? And if you could sort of even talk about how it's different to be this figure here than it might be back home in Kenya? Well, back home in Kenya, it wouldn't even be a thing. It would just be me doing, you know, it could be one boy, the bus driver, or one boy, the dentist, or one boy, the school teacher, you know, it wouldn't be a thing. But because we live in a world where here in the United States, where it is a thing, <laughs> yes. Then, then I then it it carries so much more weight, you know, psychological weight, um, emotional weight. A lot of the time that I lived here was very foreign to me, but that now I have truly begun to understand. You know, because I think throughout my time in the U.S., at least for 75% of the time that I've spent in the U.S. off and on, I was always in that 
what I call that mode, that East African mode, where I'm one boy, this is my home, this is the this is the planet I live on, and I'm here to do X, Y, Z. You know, I didn't think about my blackness being a thing. It might mm-hmm. be a thing to other people, but it wasn't a thing to me. It wasn't a thing to my family. It wasn't a thing to people in my continent, you know, because that's my home, you know, mm-hmm. and that goes back to that idea of I've, I'm old, I've been here a long time and not just here in New York, but I've been on this ground from where we all spring. I have always been here. So you can't tell me that this, that I am an anomaly or I am the stepchild, you know? Mm -hmm. So I was always in that mode, you know, moving around. But then I think as I continued to grow in my profession and then started to meet all these hurdles you know, some say they're perceived, I don't know. I started to question, well, why is it extra hard to just get this done? You know, mm-hmm. because I, I don't see why it should be hard. Like, why is it hard? Why is, why is it hard? And then you start to, re- not that I didn't know, but then I start to understand what that web is that is in operation here in the you know, in, in this United States, which is the web of exclusion, you mm. know. Um, so for me, I know that I come from nature. And that nature starts right here where I am, Georgia, this is where nature starts. Mm-hmm. I truly know that. And as I was telling my mother yesterday, I know that everything I have comes from nature. I know that. Before I was born, my mother already had milk in her breast for me for when I came out. It was already there waiting for me. Mm. Her colostrum was already there to take care of me. You know, before I was born, the air was here for me to breathe. So nature has already provided all these things for me. And as I started to meet these hurdles, I had to remind myself that what I have doesn't come from that web of exclusion. That's right. You know, it doesn't come from that web of exclusion. It comes from nature. So I just have to tell nature, hey, nature, I'm trying to do X, Y, Z. And I'm, you know, I'm not being phony this is really how I operate, you know? Because I know that I'm old. I've been here, you know? <laughs> this is my home. <laughs> you can't tell me. You can't tell me I'm the stepchild. This is my home. Yeah. And my home is, I'm going to get what I need from my home. I, I gave a lecture um, the day before yesterday and I was telling the participants that if I move to Mongolia right now, Georgia, Mongolia is my home. If I move to Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan is my home because I'm sitting here with some very old DNA. This is my home, <laughs> you, know? Mm. you know? And I constantly remind myself that as I move around and do my work, And I know that as a black woman who works with nature and for nature, I'm doing the right thing. 
So I'm very confident as I move along. And the, the web of exclusion, which is what I call the illusion, cannot stop me because I'm bigger than it. Mm. Thinking of nature as providing like mm-hmm. the breath of life. So you come mm-hmm. into this world and you your first act is to take a breath of air. Mm-hmm. And so nature exists to cradle us and mm-hmm. our reciprocal role then thinking of um, Robin Wall Kimmerer and her mm-hmm. writings about reciprocity then is to protect this cradle um, mm-hmm. so that it not only supports us, but it supports um, all the life around us. And so mm-hmm. um, I'm happy again, that you've brought um, this out of this um, conversation and that it's getting um, some airtime right here. Um, and can I just add, I'm, I'm yeah. sorry, Georgia, because I just had this thought when you said that reciprocity also means for me realizing really that I'm just like a, a firefly or a, a bumblebee. Mm. I may be conscious, but I'm just here just like that bumblebee and I'm going to be gone. So I might as well spend the time that I have here promoting life. Mm-hmm. You know, and what that web of exclusion that I talked about does not promote life. It does not promote life because it seeks to curb many human beings' natural intention to be bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, when we think about how many, and I know a lot of us say this. How many doctors and lawyers and, and, and people who would find the cure for cancer or the cure for, you know, all these diseases have been curbed because of the web of exclusion mm-hmm. that, 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 you know, how much that would have promoted life has been curbed. Yeah. You know, many and that's why I say dimmed. exactly or completely turned off because of that thing you know, that, that makes me being a, a, a black woman, landscape designer, horticulturalist, a thing. You see what I mean? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, it becomes, um, you know, the sort of uh, people talk about, well, why does it have to be the first, right? Yeah, why, why does are it you have always to be the, the first, first in, in the room? In, tw- why in 2021. It just, yeah. yeah. It's because I wouldn't, I'm, I, I'm sure I'm not the first. I mean, I'm, I'm, there are many horticulturalists and landscape designers. They just don't call themselves that in East Africa. They're just mm-hmm. working the land, yeah. you know, they're just working the land as they've always known, you know, and when you are a first, then there's something wrong in, with that society. Yeah. And um, we know that. I mean, we know that. Yeah. So this, the kind of first language, and I think it goes back to uh, some of the things you said at the very beginning about the ways in which the system that we're living under, that's a very old system, colonialism, the way it manifests then and now, 
things are need to be in categories. They have to be in boxes. And mm-hmm. labeling someone as, as the first is to way to police them and what they're doing, right? You're mm-hmm. sort of keeping, maybe you just want a first, right? Because mm-hmm. then you get to check that box and you mm-hmm. don't have to change anything about the institution that this individual mm-hmm. that you're calling a first is a part of. I know that we could talk for hours because there's still <laughs> many threads after this. <laughs> to, to pull out. But um, yeah. I wanted to ask you, just bringing it back to birds, thinking about all your exposure to birds uh, in your life so far, if you can point to like what the biggest impact that noticing birds, whether it's seeing them or hearing them has had, or even thinking about them has had on your life. You know, I just remember this holiday that my mother took us on after my my father died. My mother is such a wonderful woman. She has four children, never remarried after my father died. And she was widowed very young. And she would always take us on these wonderful holidays to national parks. And we would do so many wonderful things when we were children. We went to the Lake Nakuru National Park. And that's a place where, you know, they're thousands, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of um, flamingos. And I remember that we got into a little Peugeot. She she drove the Peugeot, the little um, French saloon. Mm-hmm. And we drove right up to the, the beach, um, the edge of the lake, Lake Nakuru. And it was a sea of pink flamingos. It was a sea of pink flamingos as far as I could see. And I remember how much that scene has imprinted, has imprinted, embedded itself in my consciousness. And I remember feeling so free because Mm. the sky was so big and so, I, I can't describe that sky and the water and then this, sea of pink flamingos with my mom and my sister and my two brothers and we were a unit Mm. and it was just magnificent and for me that scene very much is who I am as an East African because here I am on this beautiful beautiful ground the Rift Valley, oh my God. Sometimes I get emotional when I think about what that means to me, you know? And being at the lake with my mom and my siblings, and it was so beautiful and these beautiful flamingos and my mother wanted us to see the flamingos. It's just magnificent, you know? And I'm gonna take my daughter to to see it um, next year when all this COVID nonsense is over. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to um, ask you then, what are her impressions of that experience are? (laughs) Yes. One last thing I would like to add um, to the listeners. If you want to hear bird sounds from Kenya, there's a wonderful extensive uh, listing of recordings done by a man called A.R. Gregory. G-R-E-G-O-R-Y. A.R. Gregory. Um, And you can get it on sounds.bl. Dot UK, and that's with the British Library Sounds. And you can listen to all these wonderful um, 
bird species of Kenya and, and hear them. And that cacophonous medley is what I grew up listening to and still listen to now, you know. Sometimes I get up in the morning and I just put my headphones mm. on and just listen, you know. And it's just magnificent as I'm sitting and writing, remembering all this. And I just want to say to the listeners, I know I went all over the place, <laughs> but that's just how I am. <laughs> and I thank you so much for listening. And I thank you so much. Georgia, oh, it has been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Wamboy, for joining us. And thank you all for listening. Thank you. We all have places that speak to us that are familiar and where we feel connected. The land, the plants and animals we encounter become part of us. Our guest, Wamboy Ippolito, specifically describes her special experience of growing up in Nairobi and how she feels a part of her ancestral land. Wamboy helps us remember how people worldwide have lost their homes and land through colonization, but also our ancestral ties remain and we continue to fight against dispossession. One special thing about birds is that they can be wherever you go in the world, and the birds you know from family and childhood can be memories you carry with you through life. Birds can connect you to other people in space and time. Our guest is an award-winning landscape designer, the first black woman to win the Philadelphia Flower Show, the 2021 show. She reminds us to think about the spaces where we live and how we can design even a small space to enjoy while supporting diverse plants and wildlife. This is one way we can contract the anthropogenic damage done through past and ongoing settler colonialism. Consider where you live. Can you design an outdoor space that supports plants and birds and other wildlife? Is there an empty tree pit you can cultivate? A community garden? A backyard? A balcony? A window ledge? Nature is here for us. We need to be here for nature. Tune in in March for the next episode of Your Bird Story.